0: I enjoy the comedic, the comedy work of Jim Carrey. Uh, don't judge me, you sanctified ones, but I love Jim Carrey's comedy. He's funny. He has, he has so many quotable movies. Some of his movies have the best lines in them that you can just quote them all day long, or they come up at convenient times. Um, I won't get into my favorites, but anyhow, uh, Jim Carrey is an interesting guy. Uh, my brother Brian, my younger brother, used to work on private jets. And he worked on Jim Carrey's private jet one day in the St. Louis area. He would go inside these jets, and they would have to like, lay down like, all the luxury items in, in the interior of the jet. Like, these guys had carpets on the floor so their feet wouldn't get cold when they're barefoot walking around their jet while they're in the air. Can you imagine? And uh, all the screens, all the fancy stuff. And so he did all the interior stuff for these very rich people. Dignitaries, royalty from other countries, and celebrities. And I was able to go on the plane once and, and, and see the work he was doing. And uh, so, yeah, Jim Carrey was an interesting, very successful uh, man in life, well off. He made a quote one time. Jim Carrey, years later, made a quote that I think is so intuitive, and it's, it deserves a little look at because um, it, it, usually cre- it usually provokes an emotion. But he said uh, one time, uh, Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, I heard that. That's very insightful. That's a great statement. I really enjoyed that. And I posted about it on social media at the time because when I first saw it, I thought, that's really good, so I shared it. And the reaction that that statement got was surprising. Some people were like, yeah, that's good. And a few people made jokes about it, like, oh, I'd like to have that problem, you know, and just being funny. But there were a few ornery people on there like, oh, who is this man to scold us with all his privilege and wealth, telling us how nice it must be, like we should be happy being poor and he's all you getting rich, we should take our you know, just really angry and bitter at the at the statement and the who who does he think he is to say something like that. And I thought to myself, what a missed point. But go go figure, you know, people on social media being angry and saying things that don't need to be said, right? Go figure. But anyhow, uh, I was thinking, what, what a what a misread of the situation. All the guy was saying was, hey, I was once, like every one of us are, in the sense of striving for my career, hoping I'd be successful, hoping I'd make a, a breakthrough. And it worked. And then I dreamed for more, and it worked, and it worked, and I got bigger than my wildest dreams, I got wealthier than I ever imagined it would have and I wasn't. And I got to do all the things I ever wanted to do that I never thought I could do, but it worked out. And I got to the point where I realized That it didn't bring me happy. It didn't bring me all the the things I thought it would bring me weren't there. And I just kind of wish that everyone else could feel that, could experience that same. I wish you could because I have come to a realization that I didn't understand before. And that is that this is not the answer. This does not bring what I thought it would bring me. It's a good statement Uh, if we don't have bitterness and envy or jealousy or our own earthly desires that we're striving for to get mad about something like that. That's some great perspective right there. And I liked it. Still do. But it goes really well with our message today because we're walking through a book of the Bible that is going to talk about this very topic at length. So we've been journeying on Sundays through the biblical narrative, and we've been stopping along the way to study. We've been in the Hebrew scriptures for a while, and lately we've been in... Telling some stories, but also going into the books of wisdom and poetry. Remember, I told you before, uh, right in the middle of the Old Testament writings, there's a section in our Bibles called the books of poetry and wisdom. And we've seen a few of those already. We've seen Psalms. Psalms was um, the poetry, songs, the music of David. We saw the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs. That was phenomenal. And we're going to look at another one today. Now, we're going to skip one completely. I'm just warning you. One of those books of poetry and wisdom is called The Song of Solomon. I am not going to spend a Sunday teaching Song of Solomon. I've made that clear. I'm going to make it clear one more time. If you're like, but Arlen, I'm not going to get that content. Here's the synopsis you need to know. It's a book. It's a, it's a poetry book of, of love... V- verses and gushiness written by Solomon to a woman that he loves. And some people want to make it very theological and others make, just make it very sensual. It's a little bit of both. It's very uncomfortable and I am not going to read it and do it in church. So if that's that, you just got the whole synopsis of Song of Solomon as much as you're going to get from me. If you want to get more, read it for yourself. And if you really want it on a Sunday, talk to Anthony Curtis or um, or Debbie Douglas and they can speak when I'm gone one day on Song of Solomon. I'm not doing it, Okay. So that was it. But we're going to spend one more time today in a book of, of the wisdom literature. And it's also written by Solomon. It's a book called Ecclesiastes. And this is written by Solomon as well, but not so young. Earlier, Solomon wrote Proverbs when people gathered to hear his wisdom, packed out the room. He spoke about, about uh, how to be wise. And then, because he had so much wisdom. But as he got older in life, he, he, he got bored of it and he chased other things. And as he got older, he gained new wisdom, not just the wisdom that God gave him, but the wisdom that comes from life experience, from having lived and, and seen a few things work out or not work out. And he writes about this older wisdom in a later part of his life. And honestly, some people find Ecclesiastes to be a very depressing book. Other people find it to be very encouraging because he says things that sound depressing that they say, yes, thank you, I can relate to that. So whether you like it or not, I don't know, but I'm gonna be honest about myself. I love Ecclesiastes. This may be, it's one of my favorite books in the entire Hebrew scriptures. It's right near the top of my list. I I hate to even rank the top couple, but this, this is right there. I love this book. It can be a Debbie Downer, some people might think, but I don't think so. I think it's phenomenal, because it gives us some perspective of life, both in the depressing realizations, but also in what do we extrapolate from that for our lives. So we're going to study it together today. Now, i got to warn you, I love this book so much, I would love to do a six- or seven-week series going through it. I'm not going to do that. We're in the middle of a different series. I don't want to take so long to cover one book right now. But maybe when this series is done in the next couple of years, we'll cover Ecclesiastes on a different time. For now, I'm going to give all of it to you in one week. And that's a lot to ask because I really enjoy it. I have to skip so much good content, and even skipping a lot still requires me to do a dumping this morning. So I'm going to back up the truck and dump the truck on your lap. And I'm going to apologize in advance because it's all I might. I'm going to ask you to let me take this book that I enjoy that's very weird. It's a weird book. And give me a few extra minutes if necessary. I might make a few extra minutes today than usual to get through it. But uh, allow me to do a book I'm passionate for that is weird but good. And give it to you, something that will take, take you through life, hopefully, in a better way. Let's just jump in, and you've been warned. Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who lived, who ruled in Jerusalem. I can picture someone reading it. They just got their brand new copy on it from Amazon. They're like, oh, good. I got Solomon's latest book. I already read Proverbs. That was a bestseller. I got the new one. I'm going to go to get him to sign it at the bookstore next week. I'm so excited to read Solomon's new book of wisdom. What does he have to say? Verse 2. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's not what I was hoping for right there. Meaningless. Solomon what now I'm going to tell you um we're going to get into what he's talking about here I want to tell you that word meaningless comes from a Hebrew word and I the word hevel h-e-v-e-l and I said this last hour to the last group I'll say it to you also I hate bringing up Hebrew and Greek words when I do sermons I just hate it because I usually think people don't even know what they're talking about when they use them they um it becomes The words in English are usually just perfectly fine. It's just sometimes a nerd thing or even an elitist thing that people like to bicker over. I don't enjoy doing that in church. Nothing wrong with it. I just don't enjoy it. But I'm going to do it today because I want you to understand, in the King James, that word hevel, that Hebrew word hevel, is like, they, they translated it to say vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, in the uh, NLT or other translations, they use the word meaningless. It's completely meaningless. But Hevel, the, the Hebrew word, is so hard to translate Hebrew, it means so much more than just one word can give it credit for. So it kind of means like it's meaningless or vanity, like you're trying to, to grab a hold of the wind around you. You see the wind, you hear it, you feel it, you'll see it, you feel it, hear it, you want to grab a hold of it, but you just can't get your hands around it. You just, it's hard to, It's hard to grab a hold of. That's life. And and it it can feel that way when it slips through your fingers. And so we're going to come back to that today a little bit. Basically, another idea of it is for him to say, it's like trying to chase an itch that you cannot scratch. Have you ever had an itch that you couldn't scratch and you rubbed against the corner of the wall? Or you had a partner, you're like, hey, can you scratch my back right there? Oh, yeah, right there, right there. Oh, no, to the left, to the left. Oh, lower, lower, to the right, to the right. It keeps moving. What's that about? Uh, I saw someone elbowing their, you know, their spouse just now. Like, that's you. You do that all the time. But that's what happens. Sometimes we have itches that we can't seem to scratch in life. Like, you can spend your entire life sometimes chasing, like, if I can just get this promotion or this amount of money or this new relationship instead of the old one I'm tired of or this new uh, opportunity or this new spiritual thing of meaning or this new hobby or this new whatever— If I can just get here, then I'll finally feel satisfied. Then I'll reach the zenith of utopia. And so we strive and look for new things to scratch the itch that seems to be evasive. And those new things might satisfy for a little while, but then the newness wears off and they can sometimes leave us saying, I'm just not, it's just not, it's not getting the itch. We try other things or we feel depressed. And eventually we start looking back to the past and wishing we could go back and scratch some itches that we missed, as well as looking ahead to a preferred future. And it's just meaningless. And Solomon's going to talk about that, and then he's going to give us some perspective today about how that life is really about learning to appreciate the simple things. The things that we rush past in the day-to-day looking for the stuff that matters, that will make us somehow perfectly in paradise. So let's jump in. Verse 3, he says, What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises, the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Verse 8, ready? Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing is under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, Here is something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We think it's new. Why? Because, you know, the technology might change, but situations and applications and things and people and navigating, it's all the same. It's been there before. History repeats itself. He then explains in verse 11, we don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no we'll one remember what we're doing now. Like in the past, the reason we think things are new is because we don't really know what happened before. We either don't know or don't, we don't care about history, or if we do read history, we will debate what it really was. We don't even trust history anymore. Everyone's out there saying, How do I know I can trust that? Or someone wasn't just trying to sell us uh, an agenda. So people are distrustful of history, which is so sad. So we either don't know, don't care, or don't trust history. But someday we're history, and and, and we want to leave some things behind that we've done, and and, and people are going to just not know or not care or not trust that either, right? And he's just like, hey, it all just goes around, and it becomes meaningless. (laughs) You're like, that's very depressing. Solomon, you okay, bro? I mean, (laughs) That is wild. Now this is how the book of of Ecclesiastes is going to go. I want to just tell you as we get into it. We're going to spend a lot of time reading much of the first three chapters. Not all the first three chapters, but a lot of them. And then I'm going to accelerate looking just a few verses here and there through the last nine chapters. There's 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. We'll be heavy up front and we'll thin out as we go. Now what I want to ask you to do is understand that you're going to feel like a yo-yo today. Because Solomon tends to go from one depressing observation to saying, aha, here's an aha moment. Here's something that is worth holding on to in life. Then back to a depressing observation. Then back to an aha. And if he repeats the same aha moment like four or five times. We're going to see it over and over again because it's a big deal. It's a big lesson to take home with us. And I just want to warn you, we're going to go there. Solomon begins by telling his own testimony of how he once tried to scratch the itch that we all chase. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore wisdom by by wisdom everything being done under the heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. There's that phrase, Hevel. And as he makes this statement, he's saying, I tried the wisdom game. When I was young, I'm like, I want wisdom more than anything. So I asked God for wisdom. And then I pursued wisdom. I pursued understanding and knowledge. And I got it. And once I got it, it kind of left me depressed. I was so smart, but all my smarts just made me think about how bleak things were and how how things turned out. And actually, the wisdom was wonderful, but it didn't make me feel very fulfilled or happy all the time. And so I, I tried some other stuff, as we saw last week, right? I tried some other stuff that I thought might make me happy instead of, of just pursuing wisdom. So he begins in chapter 2. He says, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to search for something different. I'm going to find the good stuff. And that's what we saw last week. All these pleasures. Now, I'm going to not read the next several verses to you, but I want to tell you basically what he says for a little bit. He says, I tried the following things. I tried laughter. (laughs) Ha, 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 laughter. I love it. After a while, that kind of wore off. So then I tried wine. I thought maybe I'll get myself intoxicated, and that will be better. And it would have an immediate buzz. But then afterwards, that left me no better off. And over time, it just ruined things. It was not good. So then I said, I know I want a fancy house. I'll get a bunch of fancy houses. If I get my dream house, then I'll have scratched that itch and I'll be happy in life. And then I'll plant some vineyards. I'll get the best vineyards around. I'll have better homes and gardens, right? It'll be great. And then I'll have achieved the mark of feeling good about my life. But it didn't do the trick. I got over the new stuff that I thought I needed to have. So then I thought I'll hire servants to work for me. All sorts of them. all In every venue, so I'll have good quality people. I can, I can send around and do things and, and it's going to make me feel connected and, and responsible. But then after a while, he says, that kind of wore off. In fact, we're not going to look at it today, but halfway through the book, he mentions in a proverb some of the downside of having people working for you around you and how it kind of hurts you. But he, he, he says it was meaningless. So then he said, I tried silver and gold. I know. I'll accumulate precious metals. Not just like gold ETFs on the stock exchange. I want the real thing. Real silver, real gold in my vault. And that will make me feel like I've scratched that itch. But it left me empty. So he said, I tried music. Music will do the trick. He said, I hired all the musicians. I got all the different genres of music. All the different types of musical instruments. My Spotify playlist was amazing. It was so diverse. But after a while, I got tired of the music. It just didn't do it for me anymore. I stopped listening. So then I said, well, how about women? I'll try women, lots and lots of women. He said, I tried the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. Everything I could try, I did it. And then in the verse 8, he says, I had everything a man could desire. Because like Jim Carrey's quote earlier, he said, I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was also meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Now, he's hes going to sound contradictory in a minute here because he talks about the value of hard work. But right now he's saying, when you work hard not to enjoy the work, but to enjoy What you're going to accomplish and achieve, that working hard is going to get you to your good life someday. You're going to be successful through your hard work or your investing. He talks a lot about investing in this book. I'm going to invest or work hard. I'm going to reach that zenith of what I'm aiming for. The problem is if you accomplish that, once you get there, you're like, it's a letdown. You get it all and you're like, I got it. But it doesn't scratch the itch you've been chasing. You're chasing the wrong thing. And so it's meaningless, like chasing the wind. Verse 12, he says, So I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. For I thought, who can do better than this? than I. Verse 13, I thought, hey, wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. Why? For the wise can see where they are going, but fools walk in the dark. Now, here's what's interesting about what he's saying. He's saying, I said, you know what? If if life feels like empty, then what does have meaning, living like a wise person or living like a fool? And I realized that living like a wise person made your life better than if you lived like a fool. So wisdom is better than foolishness. Yet, here's the funny part. Yet, I saw that the wise and the foolish all share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This is also meaningless, for the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. So he says, look, yes, in the life you have, you probably have a better quality of life if you live with wisdom instead of foolishness. But in the end, they both die, and everyone forgets you. And if If you were famous enough to be remembered, and you were a fool, someone will still cheer for you, though you were a fool. And if you were, wise, if you were famous to be remembered as a wise person, someone will still dislike you in history, though you were wise. So in the end, you're forgotten or remembered poorly, perhaps. But either way, you end up in the same place. So while your life is better living in wisdom than foolishness, you still both die and get forgotten. Solomon's so cheerful today. I love this book. He says, so I came, verse 17, I came to hate life. I lost my own place just now. Where am I at? I hate when I do that. Verse number, what am I on the screen? 17, there we go. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Now, if that sounds down to you, he's not done. Verse 18, <laughs> I came to hate all my hard work here on earth. Why? For I must leave to others everything I have earned. Okay, someone relate to this here. He's I realize I can work really hard in my life and earn a bunch of stuff and leave it to somebody else. And this means this. There's a lot of levels to this. For example, a couple works real hard together to, to make sacrifices. Maybe they both work, or one works and one takes care of other. They, they work hard to make a successful life together, and then the one dies. Let's say the guy dies, and so his wife marries another man, and they enjoy what they earn together instead. Or she dies and her husband and his new wife enjoy what they earn together instead. That's like, what, what was the point? Or someone else in general just earns what we, because here's the thing, Solomon says, I worked so hard to be successful, I can't take it with me. They don't put it in the box, in the ground with me. And if they did, what good would that do me? So he says in verse 19, and by the way, he says, who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? <laughs> yet they will control, they'll control everything I've gained by my skill and my hard work under the sun. How meaningless. Like, everything I've done will be passed on to people who might be idiots. You ever, like, I build a business, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, and I start something successful, and I build it real big, and then I, I, I retire or I die, and someone comes in and they change it all, or they wreck it all, or they destroy it. Or maybe you get wealthy and you leave your money to your children thinking that you're going to give your kids all the things you didn't have in life so they won't struggle. But then they get it all and they don't ever learn the virtue of hard work and, and, and principles. And so they squander it on addictions or on pleasures and just bad, pr- bad practices and actually wrecks them. And what you meant to be a blessing to them actually ruins them. And Solomon's like, what if I give everything I've ever earned and then I die, I can't take it with me, but I worked so hard to earn it and I give it to people who don't handle it well. And it actually does no good for me and maybe even harms the people who receive it. What a worthless exercise of life. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and all their anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. They can sit up at night. We can all maybe relate to sitting up at night and worrying about things and how am I going to achieve my goals or, or worrying for the future? Or maybe looking back and worrying about the past and regretting the mistakes of yesterday and just can't even rest my mind at night. He says, what a waste. And then he makes an observation. I'm hearing a sound over here. We're all hearing it here. Pay no attention to the noise in the hallway there, whatever that is there. He says this next. And by the way, I want want you to understand something that's about to happen. Solomon is about to give us his first glimmer into something that we can hold on to that's not so depressing. He's about to give us the first of several moments where he says, aha, this is something that you should hold on to in your life today as you realize this grim reality of life's hevel. Verse 24, he says this. So I decided that there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. That's the whole thing. To, to find enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. In other words, when you do some job, not that you're finding satisfaction from reaching those goals so so someday you'll find happiness when you scratch that. It's not that. Just enjoying the ability to work and to enjoy accomplishing a task and saying, job well done. And to enjoy sitting down for a meal and actually stopping to enjoy the meal. It's why some of us give thanks before we eat. It's not because we're trying to magically bless the food in some spiritual way as if God's going to turn that garbage we're eating into healthy food. It's more about just stopping to say, I'm thankful for the things I get to stop and enjoy like this meal. I'm going to enjoy a drink. Like for me, it's a nice tall Coke Zero. Hallelujah. God is good all the time with my Coke Zero, right? And so to enjoy some food and some drink and enjoy some satisfying work. He says, then I realize that these are pleasures that are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? He says, you want to talk about enjoying things? Enjoy the simple things of life. Instead of striving to chase an itch you cannot scratch. Now, chapter 3 begins very interestingly. I want to tell you, there are a few quotable passages from Ecclesiastes that are famous in culture. For example, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You've probably heard that before, right? You've probably heard the phrase, we came from dust, to dust we shall return. That's from Ecclesiastes. But probably the most famous statement from Ecclesiastes comes in chapter 3 when he talks about how that to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven you know turn 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 the song goes right okay anyhow we know but he's going to he's going to give us a famous passage basically saying that life is about seasons good and bad that come and go and we all experience them let's read those verses really quick together ecclesiastes 3:1 for everything there is a season a time for every activity under heaven a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to harvest a time to kill A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. He says everything about life has seasons. And some of those seasons are good and bad. Some of them are planting and working hard. Some are harvesting and enjoying. Some are relational adds. Some are relational losses. Some are happy seasons. Some are sad and tragic seasons. Life has seasons for all of us. And then he pivots back to a a, a depressing yo-yo thought here, verse 9. What do people really get for all their hard work? I have seen the burden God has placed on us all. Yet, verse 11, so good, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And so what he says is this. Those seasons that we have, They come to our life and God plants them in our hearts as glimpses of things that are beautiful in their time. But we can't see those glimpses of the the eternal. That someday when we're, we're in God's presence and we see the whole big picture, it'll all make sense. But in the here and now, we only get little glimpses into the eternal in seasons of our lives that are beautiful even when they're not sometimes. Looking back, they are. And he says, he says, and so in the meantime, we have to understand this is the first time he references God's eternal perspective. There's an eternal perspective that, that God has that we will see one day. But in the meantime, we have these moments through seasons of our life to grasp the eternity he plants within our heart. And then he comes back to his big aha moment. Are you ready for it? His big, this is going to sound so familiar because he just said it earlier, but he's going to say it again. Verse 12, so I concluded That there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. Because again, life has seasons. So just be happy and enjoy it. Verse 13, ready? And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. That's a repeated thought. That we should learn to enjoy what we do and what we do and what it accomplishes. Just take satisfaction in our work that we can that we should stop and, and enjoy what we're eating. Like, slow, give thanks. Slow down long enough to enjoy your food before you woof it down. You know, and then we're moving on to the next thing. Just slow down and chew a little bit and savor and swallow before the next bite goes in the gully, you know. And, and, and enjoy. Take a deep breath and take a sip of that drink. And enjoy it. Enjoy the simple things of life day by day because these are gifts from God. Now, in chapter 4, he's going to give us another really cool takeaway, another observation of life that's worth observing. In chapter 4, verse 9, he says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. Now, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, Read the next few verses. People have often used these verses as wedding verses because two are better than one, yada, yada. And that's great. I love them for weddings because it's true that if a couple comes together and they have a happy marriage, these verses are so true. They're great wedding verses, but here's the thing they are not written about marriage, they're written about companionship in general, friendship in general, community in general. Two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. And then he says, three are even better. That's how you know it's not a wedding, a marriage verse, because that'd be weird. Three are even better, and, and, and for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. He says, look, here's the point. If you have the chance to do life with other people, that's a good thing. And some of us, we are as bad with people as we are with life. We're always striving in life for the thing that will make us happy finally or looking back with regret or we look at people with annoyance. Well, they're so different than me. That's the beautiful part. We're all a bunch of different flavored Skittles in the same container, right, called earth. And to enjoy the variety and say, that's cool because I'm not doing this alone. There's community around me in my life and I have that value and I value it. So enjoy relationships. Relationships whatever you have, friendships, this kind of a community and faith, whatever it can be, enjoy those things. Then he goes back in chapter 5. I'm jumping ahead. So I'm going to start moving along faster. Uh, chapter 5, he goes to some depressing things here. Verse, ready for it? Verse 16. This, too, is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged and angry. I'm gonna pause there. How many of you is that your that's your that's your story right there? Would you say that this weekend or this week you've just lived, your story is you've been frustrated, discouraged and angry. Is that your story? Hmm? Or maybe has that been your year? Would you people who live in your orbit say that's your story? Frustrated, discouraged and angry? Because here's the thing Solomon says this is life. This is what happens to us that when we spend our whole life trying to uh, scratch that itch and chase the thing that will make us feel whole, we can end up all the time looking ahead or looking back and being frustrated at things and discouraged and angry. And that's how life goes for so many people. And then he goes back to our big aha moment, our big idea. He says, even so, I have noticed one thing at least that is good. Ready? It is good for people to eat and drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. When he says accept your lot in life, he's not saying don't work hard to to do things or invest. He does a lot about working hard and a lot about investing in this book. We're skipping most of that stuff. But what he's saying is if you're working hard or doing those things so that you can get somewhere where you'll finally be happy, you're gonna be woefully disappointed that the payoff's not what you're thinking it's gonna be. What he's saying is in the middle of it all, you don't know that you'll be successful with your work or with what you do or what you save. You don't know it'll work. So it might not even work, so why not enjoy it right now? And if it does work, it won't scratch the itch anyhow, so why not enjoy it now? Whatever your lot in life is today, even if it changes tomorrow, whatever your lot in life is right now, enjoy it. Enjoy that food. Slow down. Like, eat a little slower and savor it and take that drink. Take a deep breath and smell the roses. Breathe in and out and enjoy that drink, enjoy the work you're doing, enjoy the simple things instead of chasing the wind, because we all tend to chase the wind and feel frustrated, discouraged, and angry with our aspirations of life. He says in verse 19, and it is good to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. That's wonderful. Um, To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, that is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life, they take no time to brood over the past. It's good that when we've learned to slow down, smell the roses, enjoy the food and the hobbies in front of us, and have a little fun, it helps us not brood about the past because we can't fix the past anyhow. Or to brood about the future as well. He says, just enjoy your life today. And then in chapters 6 and 7, he talks a lot about those Proverbs. You know, remember those Proverbs in the book of Proverbs? Those little fortune cookie short sayings? He gives a lot of them, and they're so cool. I love these ones. I'm going to skip almost all of them. I'll give you one from each chapter. Chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Right? Like enjoy what you actually do have. And just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Don't do that. In chapter 7, verse 10, he says, hey, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. It's easy for us to to whitewash the good old days and say, oh, it was so wonderful, the good old days. But the problem is you were probably discontent then as well, striving for the next good thing. And it's easy to look back and long or look ahead and long for something different. But what about right now? Where are you right now? And in chapter 8, verse 15, he does the same aha moment once again. Are you ready for it? So I recommend, he says in verse 15, I recommend having fun. Because there is nothing better for people in this world than to, ready, to eat and drink and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along the way with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. He says, look, it's, it's the, the striving is the striving. The ups and downs are what they're going to be. But if you can learn to stop along the way and enjoy this meal, this snack, this drink, this task, this job, this moment, have some fun, do a little laughing, be with some friends, enjoy yourself. Or you'll spend your whole life waiting to someday enjoy yourself and you'll never get there. Or looking back, wishing you had enjoyed yourself, but you can't go back. Enjoy the simple things in this moment. He's preaching, brother. I mean, it may be a little depressing, but he's on—he's on something here. Now, in chapter nine, he's going to give us another potentially depressing observation, but I love it because it's so—it's so interesting. Chapter nine, verse eleven. He's—I've observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. Isn't that true? Like you, you ever see people, um, you know. Don't always win. So my uncle, my uncle Steve, growing up, was a world champion kickboxer. He won two world belts. I was there with him the day he won his first world belt. And his second one was one while I was away in college. But before then, he had a, his own private gym. He trained young kids for junior golden gloves. I had a key to the gym. Him and I would work out together. I got around that culture of kickboxing for a number of years. And I learned something about the fights. The best person doesn't always win the fight. They might win nine out of ten fights, but that one time they take a, they take a, a side punch to the temple and they're on the ground flopping like a fish. Even though they were the better fighter, they just got caught that one time wrong. The strongest fighter doesn't always win. The fastest runner doesn't always win. It's like in football right now. We just, we're going to the Super Bowl. Or, I'm sorry, we're going to watch the big game next week. But anyhow, um, as you get ready for it, um, you know, the, the teams in the Super Bowl next week are two very good teams, the Kansas City uh, Chiefs. And the um, San Francisco 49ers, they're very, 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 very good teams who are worthy of being there. But are they the best teams? I don't know that they are. I think the Baltimore Ravens, who lost last week, were probably the best team in the NFL. But everyone loses occasionally, and they lost at the wrong time. They might win four to five times, but they lost at the wrong time. That happens. My point is that the fastest doesn't always win the race. The the strongest doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. The skillful are not necessarily wealthy. Look at this part. He says, and those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. That is so true. I have a pastor I know well, and uh, a very interesting person. Um, He lives in a big city metropolis area, and does a lot of ministry with some very extremely wealthy people, people who have built major corporations, made inventions. They're just multi-millionaires beyond our imagination. And he pastors or counsels people all the time who are very wealthy and successful. And here's what he says. The interesting thing he's learned is that some of the most successful people at building something amazing and becoming very rich by the world's standards oftentimes are not college-educated. Now, he's not knocking college. He's not doing this political thing people do of bashing college. He's not doing that. He's saying a lot of people who are successful are educated, but a lot of them are not. And one of the reasons he's understood in his conversations is because sometimes we're so educated that we're told all the reasons why it can't be done. We're educated to the point where we know why, why it can't be accomplished, whereas some people are just haven't been taught that it can't be done. They just go out and do it. They just go out and figure it out, and they're like successful. And, he, and so that's what Solomon's saying, that sometimes The strongest doesn't win the fight. The fastest doesn't win the race. The most educated isn't always the most successful. It's all decided by chance, by being at the right place, at the right time. Who knew? It works that way. And then in verse 12, he says, people can never predict when hard times might come. Right? I mean, it just happens. Like fish in a net or birds in a trap, people are caught by sudden tragedy. Wouldn't you agree that tragedy tends to hit us suddenly? just tends to go out of nowhere. You're just driving along, and there's the accident. You're getting, you're doing the right The bad news comes. A bad phone call comes. It just happens, and it just comes our way in life. And like birds flying away or fish swimming away, they're just suddenly caught. That's just how life goes. The difference between the birds and the fish and us, though, is the birds and the fish are actually happy until they that sudden moment. They're just floating around enjoying life, and then, boom, you know, where we spend our whole good time stressing about what's going to happen. Oh, no, sudden tragedy's going to come, so we walk around stressed, right? And he's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Enjoy the journey, because what's going to happen is going to happen. But you have right now. And he goes back to that simple idea of enjoying life, smelling the roses. In chapter 11, we're in the last two chapters now, we're almost done. Chapter 11, he says, light is sweet. Light is sweet. How pleasant to see a new day dawning. You know, when you woke up today, you got to see a new day. Do we think about that? It's beautiful outside. So it's beautiful. It's cold. It's beautiful for February in Northwest Indiana. I mean, as I've enjoyed this little run, you know. Michelle and I have been taking some walks the last couple of days. You know, they do about four miles at a time. Today, we're, we got up this morning, brought our clothes with us to church. so we can change after we get out of here. And we're going to take another four-mile walk in some trails today. And I'm excited about that in a little bit here because it's a beautiful day. And here's the thing. We weren't guaranteed a beautiful day. We weren't guaranteed another day at all. And yet here we have a day that the Lord has made and we get to enjoy it. How pleasant. He goes on and says, "Um, when people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. Hey, if you're going to be... If you're, however old you are, you've lived longer than other people who didn't make it this far. Every day, could, it could end tomorrow. We know that could end. But today was another gift. I made it a little further than many. I have another day of life. I'm going to rejoice in every single day I am given. But also then remember that there will be many dark days because that's part of life. Just the reality is smart to remember, but, but enjoy the day you have. Everything still to come is still meaningless. Or hevel is the word. He says in verse 9, Young people, it's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. Right? I mean, that's great. But then he pivots to his macro thought. In verse number 10, uh, the rest of the verse, he says, But remember that you must give account to God for everything you do. Interesting. What he's saying is, there's another day coming. He's not trying to make it depressing right now. He's saying, remember your creator. We're going to discuss that. I'm going to skip that for now. We're going to come back to that as we end. Verse 10, he says, So refuse to worry. Keep your body healthy. But remember that youth of the whole life before you is still meaningless. When you're young and you're the, coming into your scene and your lame old parents are kind of, you know, you know, you know, you know, roll, roll your eyes at them. And the older generation, you kind of push them out because the new ideas are on the scene and they're forgotten. It's our time to shine. Guess what happens to you? You get a little older and you get pushed on the side and you get forgotten and people roll their eyes at you and someone else's time to shine. And it goes on and on. So he says, enjoy the moment, but understand the big picture is we're all going the same place in the end. That's just how it ends up. And so in the last chapter, we're going to read two more verses. Two more verses at the end. Before I read them, The last chapter of Ecclesiastes harkens back to that earlier thought about remembering your creator. He says, hey, while you're young, while you're living the life of your life and enjoying every minute of it while you can, don't forget to remember that there is a creator who made you and put you here and be mindful of that throughout your life because it will guide your life better than it otherwise would go. Even though it's all chasing the wind, you'll be better off living with him in mind. And he describes how that we're one day going to get old. And in chapter 12, you should read it. It's a poetic dissertation about getting old. And when you read it, you're like, yep, that's that's how it feels getting old. It's beautiful poetry and depressing at the same time, but it's so well written, you should read it. At the very end of the book of, of, of Ecclesiastes, he ends with these two verses. Verse 13. He says, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is everyone's duty. When he says fear God, that's a harken back to his earlier book of Proverbs, where he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in saying, so he's not saying be scared of God, that God is scary. No, he's saying have that reverential awe. Have that understanding that there is a maker who made everything that we live in, who made you and me today. That he is so powerful as to make all the world, and yet so personable as to know who we are. And where we are. And if you will live in mindfulness and awe of his presence and who he is, you'll, you'll, you'll do better in life that way. If, you're, if, you'll follow his, if you'll trust that the maker has the best plans for how things work within his creation, and you'll follow his commands, your life will be better, but it still comes to an end down here. And that's what he says in verse 14. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing whether good or bad. Now, when he says God will judge us, we think of that as being a harsh thing, like God's going to judge you. God's going to judge you. But judging is not negative always. We think of it as negative because we're negative about, about judging. Judging is judging the winner. Judging is giving prizes away. I judge that you deserve. It, it, it's positive, too. And, and the judgment that we think of someday, you know, of, of all that we've done in life, we think of it in such a negative way. But what if it's not? In fact, we know it's not because 900 years after Solomon lived and died, Jesus Christ walked this earth and he went to the cross to show us that God loves us so much that he took care of the judgment of our sins on Calvary so that that we don't have to face it. That our sins were paid for so that relationship could be brought back to him. And and, and the gospel, we think about it earlier. At the cross, at the cross, where your love ran red and my sins washed white. And so when we get to God someday, Solomon's not talking about that. The gospel hasn't been revealed the way it was through Jesus quite yet. They looked looked ahead to it. But we understand that when we get before God someday, we're going to stand in the presence of, of the one who made us and who loves us perfectly. Like the way that no one's ever loved us before. And we're going to feel so washed over and completely loved in that moment. Yes, we'll look back at our lives. And it'll all make sense. All those seasons of life that change will make sense. All those little spots of the world that, uh, that we didn't get before will all come together. And that itch will finally be scratched. But, but we'll also look back at the things that we, we may have said, I wish I would have enjoyed it more. I wish I would have done better in it. But we're going to be loved in that day. And it's a good day. Because the gospel, the Christian message that God has, has, run, has worked out that day for our benefit. He's turned those graves into gardens He's given his life, and he's brought us eternal hope. But we will stand before him one day and look back. And I feel like that's the day the itch will get scratched, that you can never chase down. You spend your whole life trying to get and change people in your life, change things in your life, throw, and never fully feel whew, you got it all. You look back for the past and fawn over what happened before that you can't change. But if we could just realize that there's some things that Go beyond this life that will not be perfectly whole until we're in our, the presence of our creator. So I want to give you a statement before I close here that was written by a man named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, by the way, was a theologian, wrote a one, lot of wonderful books. Some of you know his fictional books like the, the um, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and those books. But he wrote a lot of theological books. He's a brilliant mind. He was a contemporary with J.R.R. Tolkien from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, who wrote those books. And uh, they talk about God and theology a lot. And C.S. Lewis said something one time that kind of fits our sermon today. C.S. Lewis once said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. He wasn't saying don't enjoy the journey because Solomon was clear about that. He was saying that part of chasing the wind to find that utopia, that, that, that meaning that you're just always striving for and discontent about, maybe that, some of that just speaks to the fact that we're not only made for this life and there's something else coming that will be whole when that day arrives. So until we stand before God and feel that and see that for ourselves, hey, just long for the day when you see your maker. And in the meantime, Instead of chasing the wind, enjoy the simple things. Breathe in and out and enjoy that meal. Enjoy each bite. Don't rush through it. Enjoy that beverage. Enjoy that walk. Enjoy that work you're doing that you can do. it. Enjoy the day that you woke up to and have. Enjoy some friends if you get up to dance and be with some people, even if they're different and weird to you. Just enjoy the variety. Enjoy the, enjoy the simple things. Because the future will be the future. The past is the past. But this is the day God has made. Enjoy it, and someday when we're in his presence, it'll all be right. And that's a great lesson for all of us today. I don't know if you loved Ecclesiastes, or if you hated it. If you hated it, it's probably my fault I communicated it poorly. My request to you all would be to read it for yourself. There's so much in there. But for today, what I hope to give you before we move on to some more adventures next week is just a reminder to enjoy the life God's given you and to quit chasing things in discontent that you can never grab a hold of anyhow. Jim Carrey had a point. St. Louis has a point. Solomon had a point. Enjoy the simple things and know that one day we'll be with God and that, my friends, will be utopia.